Welcome to Too Smart for This, a podcast dedicated to knowing better and doing better for ourselves and others, hosted by me, Alexis Barber. In this show, we invite real people and experts to share their stories about how they navigate an ever-demanding society and talk about the personal decisions we make from career to health and wellness. Let's get into it. listening to this. I hope you are doing as well as possible given the current political climate, which is absolutely terrifying. Um, I am so excited about today's guest, which is at Nora J. Maxwell. She and I both went to Northwestern at the same time, and during the George Floyd sort of protest last summer, I was introduced to her account by a lot of other girls I know who were following her, and she was giving us everything we needed, which was a deep dive in education into a lot of the big topics um, surrounding racism and how you can really make changes in your own life without it being like really cringy. So Nora turns out to be the nicest, sweetest, most calming person. I am so just grateful that I got to sit down and talk with her. And we covered everything from the both of our experiences with mixed women, going to Northwestern, privilege, and like the things that you personally can do to make a change in this world. Um, she is a 24-year-old activist, and she uses her Instagram account to help white and non-black people of color be better allies. Right now, she also works full-time as the Director of Growth and Admissions at Rivet School, which is a California nonprofit which helps Black and Brown, low-income, and first-generation working adults earn an accelerated and affordable college degree to unlock economic mobility. So she is incredible, so cool, and I'm really grateful to have her on the podcast. And you can follow her at Nora J. Maxwell on Instagram. And please enjoy this show and share it because I think it might be the most educated and helpful one we've had so far. Okay, okay, we are recording. Thank you so much for coming on, Nora. I'm so excited to chat with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored. I'm excited. Of course. I mean, we definitely have a lot in common, so I'm happy to chat with you. I feel like we could probably talk for hours, oh, um, yes. but <laughs> for sure, right? Like, uh, but we both went to Northwestern, and we are both biracial. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that in and of itself is so much to unpack there already, but so much and, you know, pretty, pretty small population of us that mm-hmm. get that, do that. So pretty wild. <laughs> um, but I really wanted to have you on because I feel like you are not only a very calming presence on my Instagram feed, oh. um, but also you have a really incredible way of educating people. So I want to start off by giving a little bit of like a background introduction for you. And then I have, um, of course, dive into like your life, everything that you have been working on this year. So could you tell us a little bit about what you do outside of Instagram and what led you to sort of bring it all into an educational platform? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I um, work, I have a full-time job, which I feel like is the case for a lot of people who also have Instagram, you know, presences. Um, So it's been an interesting path trying to find the balance of that. 
Um, so I work full time at a nonprofit organization in the Bay Area called Rivet School. Um, so we help uh, working adults, specifically those who are underserved by higher education in the U.S. So um, Black and Latinx folks, folks who are first in their families to go to college, um, low income folks, people who have been to college before but had to stop out, et cetera. Um, so we help those people earn a bachelor's degree in an accelerated and affordable way. Um, so really a, trying to help people unlock economic opportunity and mobility through higher education. Um, so I am the director of growth and admissions at Rivet School. I've been there for about two years um, and I talk about it a lot on my Instagram, but absolutely love what we do there. Um, I love my coworkers and just love um, what I think is being able to be, at least work towards being an anti-racist organization. I feel really excited to be a part of building that. Um, so yeah, so I do that full time. Um, and it is kind of technically my second, but I would say first like major full-time job out of college. Um, and as you said, both went to Northwestern, graduated in 2018, um, and currently in Chicago right now because of the pandemic, but uh, live usually full-time in San Francisco. Wow. Okay. So what brought you to Chicago then? So I really took advantage of this work from home setup during the mm -hmm. pandemic. We've been remote since um, March. Uh, San Francisco went into stay at home order, I think like March 12th or something like that. So been sort of bouncing around, staying with my boyfriend's family, then my family and my family lives in Chicago. So we've been here. Um, I've been in Chicago for about four months now because of the pandemic. So I'll be heading back to California too in the optimistic hope that things are going to start opening up and, you know, hopefully start looking for a place again. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it's been nice to be in Chicago. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to really see a, a bunch of my friends and family here because obviously pandemic, but it's mm -hmm. nice to just even be in the same spot again. Definitely. Definitely. I visited Chicago briefly. Mm, um, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. For the election <laughs> just because I didn't want to be alone, yeah. uh, but sounds amazing. Okay. That's amazing. So essentially what exactly led you to start sharing things on Instagram about, you know, becoming an anti-racist? Like was this before George Floyd's death or was it, you know, afterwards? Like what empowered you to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, really the major catalyst was George Floyd's death and the ensuing protests. So starting late May, um, I think I've always been pretty vocal on Instagram, um, just about anti-racism, um, about things related to DEI, because those are things that have obviously impacted me personally and things that I'm also like just passionate about. Um, also, I think politics would be a big part of that. Um, but yeah, after the George Floyd protest started, I made a um, Instagram story for Blackout Tuesday. So I think one of the first Tuesdays of June when especially white people in solidarity with black people posted a single black square to their Instagram um, as a way to say, you know, I'm silencing myself, I'm listening, et cetera. And there's big problems with that, including people using the Black Lives Matter hashtag, really clogging that um, hashtag feed, which is used to disseminate really important information about organizing um, and uh, generally used by the BLM organizations and different chapters across the country. So I made an Instagram story just in response to that. Um, had I had seen people in the past do a cool thing where you can sort of have words pop up on each slide. So um, instead of like having a big block of text, all of a sudden little sentences or blurbs or GIFs pop up. And I liked how that looked. So I just tried it out. Um, 
did a little story on my response to Blackout Tuesday, um, how me calling people out might trigger might trigger white fragility and um, what white fragility is and how to respond to that. So it was just something really made for my friends and family. That's all who followed me at that time and just got a lot of positive feedback from that. And then from there, um, just sort of started building on that concept of using the Instagram story feature to teach these sort of mini lessons on, you know, allyship and anti-racism. So what for, how did you decide, I guess, sorry, I'll back up for a second. Where did you learn all of this? And at what point in your experience growing up, did you have this? I mean, so for me, I had um, when Mike Brown was killed in St. Louis is when my big awakening of like everyone around me is racist sort of <laughs> happened. And um, so for you, what was a catalyst moment where you were like, let me learn all this information and then be able to disseminate it? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I would say it probably started with Sandra Bland's murder um, in, I mean, yeah, when was that? I, I want to say it was towards the end of when I was in high school, I think maybe around 20, wow, 13 or 14. Um, and that 13, yeah. 13, yeah, that impacted me a lot because Sandra Bland was from Naperville, which is the suburb of Chicago that I grew up in, um, or at least spent time there. I think this happened in Texas, but it was, it felt somewhat close to home. Um, and mm-hmm. I was young. I mean, I know people get involved at such a younger age these days, but I was what, 16 or 17. And the concept of police brutality, fortunately for me, hadn't been something that had touched my life at that point. So to see it so clearly laid out in front of me, I think was like a huge shock and wake up call. So I've always been aware of, I would say, and I don't know, I think part of it's like the biracial experience. I've been aware of racism from a very young age. I haven't always put the term racism on it because I haven't always had that language. But um, I think sort of my personal experiences combined then with some more academic and extracurricular and then professional experiences I've had. So once I got to Northwestern, um, I was a part of a a number of different student groups. And um, just because of some of the classes I was taking at Northwestern and some of the language that I was learning, um, used those positions in student groups to then start applying like a DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion lens to the work I was trying to do in those organizations. So I think it's a it's a combo of some of these personal experiences, some of these large shock current events that we've witnessed, um, and then some of the more formal, like, again, academic um, training and um, I guess like learning in classes that I've, that I've taken. So try to do a sort of a combo of all of those things. Um, I think the best lessons, at least from like the things I've learned from, are those that really combine the personal with the um, very concrete and tangible and like sort of historically backed up. Um, so that that at least is my aim, and when I'm when I'm creating these stories, is to combine this personal aspect with facts and mm-hmm. history. Exactly. So, did what sort of personal aspects or experiences? I know we are both mixed, and mm-hmm. so for you growing up, like what kind of experiences started to inform the this like passion for yeah. for understanding these things yeah i think um and it's so interesting too how like the mixed experience varies growing you know it, growing it really up does, yeah, yeah depending and i and i really want to do a story on this it's just such a complex topic but i think so much of it depends on your physical appearance and it just that is a like a just the genetic lottery like yeah that literally. is you just don't know i mean 
Um, my siblings and I exactly, are all exactly different shades, but we have the same parents. But it's it's different for every single exactly, one and that changes the way that you show up in the world and that the world sees you. So it, I think that obviously there's like no one universal mixed experience, but same thing with me. I have two sisters. My sisters both have much coarser hair, much coarser and curlier hair than I do, but are much lighter than I am. I'm much darker than them, but my hair is much uh, more like white hair. So those things, I don't think some people realize how much those things actually really shape, again, how the world perceives you and how you perceive the world around you. But I grew up in, like I said, I grew up in Naperville. Um, When I was growing up, it was a pretty white suburb. And so a lot of my friends were white. um, A lot of my teachers were white, neighbors white, et cetera. So I would experience these little microaggressions of people calling me names, making comments on my physical appearance. just generally feeling othered, but not really knowing what that word was or like knowing even what that means to feel othered or to feel just like not a part of things. Um, And I think something that I've talked about on my Instagram a lot is that my mom has been like the best ally from a young age and she's white, but um, has really empowered me and my sisters to feel confident, um, sort of protecting our own comfort and safety and well-being over others. So that means, you know, when a white woman walks up to me at a store at a young age and says, you know, what are you? Or can I touch your hair or comments on my skin color? Um, Doing things that make me feel more more comfortable in those situations than, you know, just doing things because I think I should because they're polite or what I've been raised to do. So um, I think lots of those, again, microaggressions, those little moments growing up where I couldn't quite place my finger on it, but knew it wasn't right and knew it didn't make me feel good. And as I got older, especially moving into middle school and high school, I started to get the language. I think um, my friends were talking more about it. Um, And I I just think like we've seen such a shift over the past five to 10 years of people's comfort being explicit, what I call racially explicit. That's a term from... um, an organization called Building Racial Equity, but just being really explicit with your language and saying, you know, the difference between saying a person of color versus a black person, you know, those things aren't bad words and actually being racially explicit is really helpful. So I think as I got older, I became more aware, aware of the power of my language and aware of the power of just being explicit in the experiences I've had and being able to say, you know, that actually was racism that I experienced. And maybe I didn't know that at the time or didn't perceive it that way, but that's what it was. Um, I think a whole other can of worms that I'm sure you can relate to has been getting to Northwestern, showing up in college and so um, all of a sudden experiencing a race racism very acutely and also at the same time being equipped with all this new knowledge and language about racism and white supremacy and just these all these crazy terms and concepts I had never encountered before. And I think that was very a, a crazy experience to see these things showing up in my own life and then be empowered with the language used to to name those things showing up. So um, it's been a journey for sure. And I think it's honestly, though, the, the racism and microaggressions hasn't changed growing up. I think it's gotten easier for me to feel more confident in um, how I'm reacting to these events. Totally. Yeah. I mean, the Northwestern experience, I would love to know what yours was like, because for me, I think uh, I had a similar experience to what you described having an elementary school of always feeling othered or always feeling like you had to sort of choose sides Um, and having like a – I went to a black elementary school but then a white and Asian high school and then getting to Northwestern, it was like all these people and you have to sort of put yourself in a box socially Mm -hmm. um, of are you going to be in Greek life or are you going to hang out with black people or are you Mm -hmm. going to do something else with your time? And I really struggled with that 
because I didn't find a great black community in my freshman fall, which led me to go through recruitment and be in a sorority. And so we all have sort of recognized and are reckoning with the fact that Greek life is extremely problematic and definitely needs to be abolished. But I know you also had that experience. So Mm -hmm. for you, could you talk about what that was like for you at Northwestern? And um, I also want to just sort of get into like Greek life as a construct. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, I have so many thoughts on Northwestern. I think – where, where to start? I think I have a really similar experience to you coming into Northwestern. And I think the thing that's really interesting about this is like so many of these experiences that I had were not – were obviously not unique to my experience at Northwestern because the, some of the biggest institutions or student organizations at Northwestern are just like predominantly and historically white, like Greek life, for right. example. Um, so it – almost felt like all of the major options at Northwestern, like the things that were being pushed by our um, PAs, you know, like our our freshman orientation counselors mm-hmm. and professors and upperclassmen that I would meet were all these like historically white experiences at Northwestern from the very, like those were some of my very first impressions of what it meant to be a Northwestern student. So I sort of fell into all these circles that I started to realize I didn't, didn't feel like my own and didn't feel like a place I could be comfortable in. But didn't realize that until I was immersed in them and sort of started to look around and think like, where are these other, like you said, where are these black social circles that I was told by Northwestern's admissions people that well were just said. We yeah, had running rampant. On the yeah, I, I, yeah. There was like, I don't know if you went to this thing called Wildcat Days. Yes. Where, yeah. And it was like only for black students, but I didn't real, it wasn't ever advertised. So talk about not being racially explicit. It was just called Wildcat Days and you were invited to Wildcat Days. And I'm like, okay, cool. A time to learn more about the campus and take a tour and meet other students. And all of a sudden I started looking around. I'm like, there's only black people here. How very interesting that you would have mentioned that, which like, <laughs> Cool, but I think it really overinflated like the black experience in my. I was like, I thought that was just the normal Northwestern experience. Then I got to Northwestern, I was like, where are all the black people? Where is everybody that's not white and upper class? And um, so I've I've always said I felt like a little misled and purposely so by Northwestern. I think I came in already with a bad taste in my mouth, but um, I, I had the same experiences as you, where I sort of stumbled into these really white groups and it becomes really difficult to remove yourself from those circles because it becomes your entire experience at Northwestern. I think Northwestern, um, especially, I know this is the case at some other colleges and universities in the U.S., but it is really, your experience is really defined by what student organizations you're a part of. Um, So true. And it almost, yeah, student groups. And it almost feels like it's, you're nothing without at least one student group to attach yourself to. And honestly, a lot of people play into that narrative from, again, like your freshman, like orientation counselors mm-hmm. to professors to other students. And so all of a sudden I'm really deeply wrapped up in these white groups. So I was in, I was in a sorority too. And then I was in a um, hiking group at Northwestern um, that I'm looking around and realizing that there's nobody like me and that I almost, I feel like I'm so deep in it that there's no way to even remove myself without completely losing the identity that's been assigned to me as a student there. So um, among other, I mean, obviously I also experienced racism at Northwestern from students and professors and from my, and um, from people in those student groups I mentioned and microaggressions and all of that. So that's on top of it. But I think institutionally too, there's obviously a much larger issue here at play about sort of who owns the power on campus and how you can play into that power and what you have to compromise in order to have access to it. Yeah. I feel like, at Northwestern, 
even if it's not Greek life, because Greek life is technically only 40% that my tour guide tour guide brain is coming back. But Greek life is technically only 40%, but it does rule the power structure on campus, yeah. right? And so for those of us, or for me, I feel like I wouldn't have been as professionally successful if I was not exposed to all the people in Greek life, for example. So there is a hierarchy on campus, but it is very white. And yeah. so um, for me, it felt like once I was in a sorority or even any student group that was predominantly white, that for me created a deep, I guess, because I wasn't being my true self at any point while I was at Northwestern. Yeah. Yeah. I felt as though that sort of translated into like a lack of confidence for me going forward because I was constantly trying to code switch to fit in mm-hmm. to like sort of just be around all these people just to su- sort of survive. So I'm wondering for you, um, at least that I felt that most explicitly in my sorority, despite mm-hmm. any good experiences I did have. Did you feel that in Greek life more so than like Northwestern at, at large? Um, and if so, like what can we sort of do to further the the abolition movements of Greek yeah. life? Yeah, I think um, I I definitely relate with that, um, and I I do I have a similar sense of like I was never really myself at Northwestern, and it shows because I actually have very few close friends that I'm still in touch with from Northwestern because I just don't almost don't recognize myself the person I was when I was there, mm-hmm. um, and it, it is because you again like I said you have to sort of compromise aspects of yourself to fit in, and I think for me there was also like the sort of class or socioeconomic aspect of it too. So there was a lot of hiding and uh, yeah, just sort of hiding of who I really was and like what my identity, you know, there was a time that I was like, I had to leave an event early because I had to bike to babysitting because that was how one of my jobs I was working on campus to make money. And somebody's like, you babysit? Like, that's so fun. Why would you do that? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I mean, to make money? I don't know. <laughs> do you think I just I have do this to, as a hobby? Because <laughs> I have to eat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I yeah, I, I definitely um I relate to everything you just said. And I think that I started to actually have issues with Greek life starting like my junior year, um, maybe even earlier than that. I um ended up as the um one of the heads of recruitment for my sorority which was not on purpose. Yeah. I don't know how that happened. I mean, I do, I think it's because they wanted to like diversify their uh, like leaders. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know why it was. I applied for like the diversity position. I think it was called the diversity chair. Wait, I think I remember seeing you now. Probably. It's coming coming back to me. Yeah. I try to block out that time in my life, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Crazy. Okay. I don't know when you, I, I have seen some things as being the head of recruitment, like that, that, exposed to to me and it wasn't quite I definitely was like there are race issues within Greek life and um, there is no way to conduct an objective recruitment process like we tried to do some DEI training so that when I'm talking about the times that I've tried to incorporate DEI into these student positions that I had like that was one time leading a DEI workshop before recruitment began to avoid implicit bias affecting you know how you talk to the women that show up at the house but um I was I was already recognizing like there are obviously some race issues here. There are like class issues because of dues and all of the unstated fees that are a part of being Greek uh, part of Greek life. Um, but I wasn't quite grasping it at the root, which I think is like the key of doing like actual like, abolition or anti racist work. Is you I was looking at the symptoms of a much much larger issue. So I'm 
really like so proud of the current people in Greek life who are taking again grasping it at the root and saying that you can't fix this because I think a lot of there are there was a, there were many conversations happening when I was in Greek life of people saying I want to join so I can change it from the inside out and I had that same sort of idea like mm-hmm. I want to transform this but it's a it's a national and like centuries old okay decades old institution like you 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 as an individual cannot, you can maybe change, you can maybe ameliorate some of the symptoms of these much larger institutional issues with Greek life, but you yourself are not going to be able to change the roots of these issues without a mass movement of, for example, abolition at at certain um, campuses, which is what's happening at Northwestern right now. So I really applaud the people who are doing that type of work. I think that some of us had like the right idea in mind, like let's change it from the inside out. But I think we were missing the larger picture, which is it can't be changed, which is the case with some of these flawed institutions. Some of it is so deeply ingrained, you know, the, the racism, the classism, the sexism, um, the misogyny is so deeply ingrained in some of these institutions that you really can't just tweak it. You've got to just scrap the whole thing and and start over. Totally. Yeah, I think that's um, something that I think a lot of my audience is white women. And I I don't know if that's the same for you or not. Um, But I feel as though the Abolish Greek Life movement is something really difficult for white women to grasp. Mm -hmm. um, Because if they had a good experience, then why does it need Mm -hmm. to sort of go away? And for, for me, and I was head of recruitment in, in my sorority. I was very deeply involved in it, despite all those feelings of really not feeling welcome or involved. I still worked really hard for it, probably because of like some internal need to yeah. f- fit in with white people, which <laughs> we could get into too. <laughs> but um, that itself, I think it there is no way to fix something that is every single day hurting someone. Like yeah. as I was recruitment chair less than a year ago, and all of these institutional problems were the reason that we didn't have a more diverse class, let alone Northwestern's standing as an extremely elite institution that already puts that funnel to be really small in the first place. So there's a lot to unpack there, but I feel like that's something I will touch on in a larger, in a larger, long, longer podcast, perhaps a solo episode. But one thing that I wanted to talk to you about as well is sort of like for this audience that I have of white women, I guess you do education on your Instagram stories all the time. And then there's people who are reading books and stuff like that too. What is the three like sort of levels of educate of educating yourself and then making change um, from diversifying your Instagram feed to maybe something larger that people could do like f- going forward to sort of help push our country and our politics and our sort of lives and our human rights forward? Yeah, that's a great question. I would probably split it into, this is also a framework that I learned. This was a training that I took through building racial equity on, um, it was just a a workshop on racial equity. And the framework that they use um, to think about how racism exists in our country is a four-part framework. So racism racism exists at the individual level, it exists at the interpersonal level, which is, you know, obviously our relationships with others and the way we interact with other people. It exists at the structural level. So structures like, um, you know, Northwestern, for example, or um, a school or a police department. And it also exists at the institutional level, which is when structures work together. So like the prison system um, and just the entire federal government. So 
racism exists at all of those levels and all of those levels of racism influence each other. Obviously, when people are individually racist, they do things at the structural and institutional level when they have the power to do so that also uphold racism. And when we have racist laws and policies in our country, those things then help other people form racist thoughts and opinions without even realizing it because that's just the way things are done here. So I think that's a really helpful way to think about racism because I think that sometimes when people think about racism, they might just be thinking about, for example, interpersonal racism, where a white woman calls the cops on a black man, even though he actually lives in that apartment complex that she lives in too, or mm-hmm. something like that. But racism shows up in a lot of places and it's not just in our interactions with others. And it's not just in our own thoughts. It's, it's baked into every single part of the way that we go about our day and the way our society is structured. So because that's the case, I think it's helpful to think when you, especially when you're just getting into the idea of being an anti-racist or being an ally or just trying to start thinking more about racism as a white person, I think it's really helpful to think about what you can do on all four of those levels. But to answer your question, I'll combine it into three levels. I think you can kind of combine individual and interpersonal work with structural work and then institutional work. So if you wanted to do something at the individual or interpersonal level, um, there's a lot of things obviously you can do there. That all has to do with addressing the um, racism and the implicit biases that you hold that you might not even realize that you hold or believe because these things are really deeply ingrained in us. And they're so deeply ingrained in us that sometimes even Black people or people of color can internalize racism and these prejudices. So Mm-hmm. obviously these are big forces working on us so at the individual interpersonal level one thing that I personally really advocate for is challenging your own implicit bias um, so those biases that we don't even know we hold but lead us to do things or say things that are racist so for example um, white people not realizing that an implicit bias they hold is that all black men are scary they don't realize they hold that so mm-hmm. every time they walk down the sidewalk and see a black man walking towards them they cross over the street and that, that's not even a conscious decision. It's just something that they do in the moment. Um, but those implicit biases obviously impact the way that we think and the way that we speak and I think that and the way that we act. And I think that addressing that is incredibly important. I have a story on addressing implicit bias. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of call it like challenging your first voice. So you know that like p- the voice that pops in your head that says something super messed up um, about yes. somebody you see or something you encounter and it's this voice that you're like, I know I shouldn't think that or that shouldn't, I don't believe that, but it's that first voice that pops up. And I personally think that one of the best ways to challenge your implicit bias is to create a second voice that always comes in when that first voice comes in and says, hey, that was actually racist, what you just thought. And that thing you just thought is not true and it's not based in fact and you shouldn't act on it. And it's just this really like deliberate cultivation of a second voice that is constantly checking that first voice or that implicit bias. So That's one thing um, that I think that people can do at the more like at the structural and institutional level, um, obviously voting, being civically engaged, those things really, really matter. We saw people showing out in record numbers this year for the um, national election, which was huge. Um, Mm -hmm. But there are elections at the local level, at the city level that are just as important, if not more so, because those really impact your own day to day, because those are things that are happening at the very local level. Um, So I think that one thing that you could do at the you know structural or institutional level would be to challenge yourself to vote in every election that comes up for you, whether it's local or presidential. Um, and then um, I think maybe at um, 
more the structural level would just be to think about where you hold power. So, you know, if you are um, somebody who is more senior in the workplace and has some sway over, um, you know, organizational goals or vision or mission, um, or if you are a teacher in a school, or if you are a student leader in high school, um, thinking about where you hold power in these more structural settings and how you can use that power to fight racism and advance anti-racism. Um, that can look like forming a DEI task force within your workplace. Obviously, that's just a first step, but that would be a way to influence, you know, exercise your power. Um, if you have a little less power, maybe if you're a little bit more junior, maybe it looks like talking to your manager or boss about what that could look like. Um, I think that when we think about addressing racism at the structural institutional level, we have to think again about where we hold power or where we can access power and then how we can use that power to advance anti-racism. That makes sense. So what um, do you say to people who, so as I've shared in the past, like my, my family is very much like not in agreement that this type of racism at a structural level or even sometimes at a interpersonal level really exists and or is that widespread. Mm -hmm. So for people like that, um, I'm sure you get a lot of DMs from people also saying that just sort of like in an upset way. Where for you do you draw that line of of people who are simply not sort of educated about these things versus and where and you holding empathy for them mm-hmm. versus someone who is just like being willfully ignorant or is there a middle ground in between those for you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I do think that um, a lot of a lot of these issues, like like you're saying, um, people who deny that racism exists or people who say all lives matter, or people who um, don't understand, don't think police brutality is actually a, you know, a thing. I think a lot of it is, um, a, it, I think it stems from fear and it stems from ignorance and it stems from a lack of experience or knowledge with the topic. Um, and I think that, I mean, I think my advice would vary depending on who's asking, because I think as a black person or a person of color, like you, can choose to engage with those types of people who maybe are a little bit lower down on the spectrum that you're laying out here that they're actually a little just more ignorant um, and maybe just again less experienced versus somebody who might be a little bit more deliberately you know set in their beliefs really trying to advocate for the fact that racism doesn't exist despite people trying to educate them I think that mm-hmm. when you're a black or a person of color it you have to protect yourself first and I think that there is a line between you using your voice and your very valuable personal experiences with these issues to maybe open the minds of others and you not, you know, reopening your wounds just for the sake of trying to educate somebody ignorant. I think that that's something I've been trying to work on is that you, um, you know, you don't owe people an education on racism as a black person or a person of color. And I think some white people just sort of assume or expect that um, black people or people of color are there to educate them on racism because they're the ones experiencing it. Whereas it actually should be the people who are perpetuating perpetuating racism, which would be the white people. Um, so I, I do think that, I, I think that I've seen sometimes, especially on social media, people saying, you know, if you voted for Trump, block me or unfollow me. Or, you know, if you don't believe all cops are bad, block me or unfollow me. And I see white people doing this a lot. And I understand the sentiment, but 
I think that people are missing out on a really valuable opportunity to engage with those people. Mm-hmm. Um, again, there are there there is a difference. There's the difference between somebody who maybe just really doesn't get it and can be talked to, and there's people who get it and still, you know, are Trump supporters or still are mm-hmm. racist. But I think those times where, you know, maybe it's a grandma or a friend or a colleague or a neighbor who just like doesn't get it and keeps saying all lives matter and tells you they voted for Trump, there is a there's a way to change their mind or there's a way to at least educate them a bit. And I've seen a lot of really valuable resources being circulated right now on that. And I think it comes down to we get really wrapped up in buzzwords, I think, especially social media encourages that. So like, you know, abolish police, mm-hmm. um, defund the police, um, which those things are true. Like that is what we are trying to do. Um, but I also saw a really awesome graphic and I'm not going to remember the person's username. So um, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they're okay. We can with me saying this, but, um, <laughs> there is a, an awesome graphic that I saw on Instagram of just sort of a ladder of, you know, of your journey as an ally or an anti-racist. And the very bottom rung are people saying all lives matter. And the top rung are people who say abolish the police and all people are, all white people are racist. You know, like there are many rungs between those two, um, those two sort of uh, contrasting points. And when you try to bring somebody from the bottom rung all the way up to the top rung in a single conversation, they're going to fall off the ladder and never try to get on that again, because they're going to be like, I don't understand what this is. It's scary. I don't agree. And I don't want to engage with that. So I think people sort of over index on these buzzwords and these like what's trendy right now, instead of just having real genuine conversation, you know, eliminate all the vocabulary that you're used to using in these conversations and just talk to the person on a very personal level. Um, You know, instead of saying like, defund the police. You can just talk a little bit about like how are police departments funded and how is a city funded and who, what budget goes where and who gets the most budget. You know, I think people, um, I, I think it sometimes stems from people not really fully understanding the, these concepts themselves and then trying to educate others, which the, the attempt is valiant. But um, I think the best work is when we really understand it and process it on an individual level and can talk to the people around us who are willing to listen to us um, and put these concepts into words that maybe feel a little less scary and a little less foreign to them and um, make them actually willing to open up and engage instead of um, making them feel like there's no way they can ever understand or that, um, you know, that they're bad people. I think that's really when people shut down. Yeah, I think that's true. I think when you, and I think the word racist is a buzzword in the other way of that when you are a white person being called racist, I think it's like this huge burn, but in reality, it's just a structural thing that you need to sort of overcome. And it is at least hopefully on an individual level can be, you know, talked about and you can work through it a little bit, Mm -hmm. but it is an everyday process. Like Mm -hmm. you are going to have racist thoughts for the rest of your life, but it's about recognizing them and bringing in your new second voice that everyone hopefully is developing to, to combat that. And Mm -hmm. so I guess in in that same sort of like vein of social media that you touched on where there is buzzwords a lot mm-hmm. for young people who like myself who get almost all of our information from social media and sort of are very are on there all the time getting all these n- new information what are like some boundaries that you've put up for yourself and so and what should we look out for when we are seeing new information or buzzwords start to pop up Yeah, that's a really good question and something I think is really important to add into the conversation right now because I think it's 
in- amazing and incredible how Instagram has transformed really starting in May and June into like this very educational platform. And I know it's been used for educational purposes in the past, but all of a sudden, all of these, um, you know, racial justice accounts and, um, you know, political accounts are being used to share, you know, these 10 slide infographics, laying out what a new vocabulary term means or breaking down a current event that just happened. And I think it, it just helps make this information so much more accessible and puts it right in front of people in a way that's impossible to miss. And so there's a huge benefit to it. But I also think that when we interact with this content, like we interact with the rest of social media, where we look at it for a split second and scroll, you know, maybe like it, comment, scroll. Um, it just, we just, we're not really learning, I think, as much as we might think we are. Um, I have really been trying to this year slow down in my consumption. Um, obviously, Instagram and social media is made to consume and to hold your attention and to keep you scrolling. And because of that, it's not really made to like slow down and really process and dig deep into a post. That's just not how we use Instagram because it's not how we've used it in the past. Um, so some things that I recommend are for one, just like slowing down on the pace of it. I think if you're following like, you know, a hundred activist accounts, that's great, but how much are you really getting out of each of those and how much are you really interacting with that content? Um, so I think one feature that I really use this year is the save feature on the far right side of an Instagram post. Um, and you can obviously categorize your saved posts into different folders. So I have all these different folders on my Instagram of like words, words I want to look up or you know, current events or, you know, a cool, like a new person, new politician or new activist to look into. Um, And I think just like saving these things with the intention that I will go back to that folder at a later time when I'm actually like deliberately interested in, you know, um, brushing up on vocabulary or brushing up on current events. I think that that feature actually can really be helpful for doing that. Um, I also think that it's really important to fact check right now on social media. Um, there's a lot of information being sent out and it's sent out really quickly, especially in response to these current events that happen, you know, whether it's like a police shooting or an election update. Um, and obviously like the best content on social media is the content that's makes you like, you know, it's buzzy and it's emotional and it makes you scared or anxious, um, or angry. Yeah, exactly. And so those, I think it's just important to remember to pause when you see those things and before you share it on your story or before you comment or before you repost it to your own feed, just take a quick second to fact check. It's actually like incredibly easy to fact check and you'll, you'll see that not, I mean, it's hopefully it's a small portion, but there are quite a few things on social media that aren't either fully true or, um, sort of skew the real picture of something to make it more emotional or buzzy or just have it perform mm-hmm. better. Um, so I think it just really comes down to that like deliberate slow consumption. And I think there are there are features on social media that make it possible to consume things in those ways. But I also think it's a good reminder to just like also find ways to learn and process and understand off of social media because um, I think that is where the real learning and implementation can happen. Totally. And I think that's a really good reminder to have because I think even with my generation and those younger than me, being super political and politically active is um, also a trendy thing. And I think that leads to people getting lost in all of this information and feeling like they have to agree with everything they see rather than and take a step back and really make sure they have all the information because yeah. there is a pressure to post immediately. And I think there should be a pressure to voice your voice your 
your beliefs and help people who uh, are, if you're in a position of power, help people who are not in a position of power, mm-hmm. um, but not to the point where you are spreading misinformation, exactly. um, you know, carelessly. Exactly. So very important distinction there. Um, I guess then I do want I know we're running out of time and I want to ask you lots of questions about yourself too, but the, um, when it comes to social media, you've really, you've grown a a bigger following than obviously you started the year with. Mm -hmm. And I've seen you post things about how you need to sort of take a step back. Mm -hmm. I definitely struggle with this. So for you, um, what has, what has really helped you with burnout in the past? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. And I I think I've said this in a story before, but I really don't think I've actually experienced burnout in the way that I have until this year. Um, I'm sure, as you know, balancing a full-time job with a large Instagram account is a lot of work. It's, I mean, it's possible to fill up a full-time, obviously people do Instagram full-time. And so you, there is certainly enough to do that you could be doing like two full-time jobs worth of work if you're trying to do both those things well. And I think I've really experienced that this year. And I think especially to like the content I post is about like my experiences with racism and white supremacy and big topics that like aren't super fun to post about. Um, So I think it's like this emotionally draining too, you know, so while, while I enjoy doing it and think it's important, it also is, it is draining. So um, I think that an account that's been just absolutely so helpful to me this year has been the nap ministry. Um, I came across them on my explore page, I think. Um, it is run by a black woman from what I understand. And it is just, I think it's the best account on Instagram right now. Um, she just, she advocates for nap and rest as an act, as a revolutionary act and as an act of resistance, because we obviously live within a very capitalistic society. It's fast paced and grind culture is put on a pedestal and we are expected to produce and produce and produce and consume and consume and consume. And this pace of life is is tied into capitalism, is tied into white supremacy, is tied into racism. So her whole thesis of the account is that rest is revolutionary. And when I came across the account, I felt so um, validated and so excited to learn more about this idea of just like resting as a way of taking back space. Um, her She definitely targets Black women. Um, Mm -hmm. in the idea of, you know, black women should rest more. And that is revolutionary in and of itself and talks about how like even, you know, Harriet Tubman um, would rest while, while rescuing slaves from slavery. Like um, just like that, this is like a historical idea and something that is so important, but it's not just for black women. It's for everybody that's a part of this society that we live in, especially American culture. Um, and so I think like that perspective has felt so helpful to me and realizing like I'm somebody who wants to budget out all of their time. And when I'm off of work, I'm like, okay, what else should I be doing? And for a while there yeah, during the summer, it's like internalized that. Exactly. Like it's internalized. It's internalized that our productivity is our worth. Um, and right. that is not the case. And I think even just realizing that has felt so helpful to me this year. Um, and realizing too that burnout is a symptom of the society that we're part of and not like our own failures. Um, if anything, it's like it's a failure of ours to resist the system, but obviously it's all these things working against us. So um, yeah, that's felt you, super yeah, helpful. For sure. Do you feel the same way about racism in the way that you've just said of like burnout is not necessarily like a personal failing, but 
it is a personal failing to not resist it. Yeah, I think that's honestly, yeah, there's such a there's such a parallel there. Um, I, I think that's like so important for white people, especially earlier on in their sort of allyship, anti-racism journeys to understand like, and I, I really recommend White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. People have mixed feelings on the book, especially because she's a white woman um, and really making a, a lot of bang from uh, educating white people on racism. Right. But I do think, especially if you're early on in your journey, that perspective is so helpful. I think people sometimes um, get a bit defensive or are a little less inclined to listen to like a black person speak about this. And I think this is a good um, sort of like wading into the shallow end. But she talks about the same thing. Like you can be a good person with good morals and a good mother and a good friend, a good daughter, a good coworker, and be racist. Like racism, calling somebody racist is not saying you're a bad person. It's saying that you are a symptom. You are like a product of a racist society. And so it is up to you to fight that. Like if you do nothing, neutral is racism. So it is up to you to fight it. And I think the the parallel you just drew was, was perfect. It's, um, it is, not a moral feeling, I don't think, to be racist unless you are racist and you are um, aware of it. You know, I think once you once you lose the ignorance to it, it is now on you to make sure you do not uphold racism and to make sure you are not racist. But um, it is natural for white people to be racist. And again, it it's even possible for black people and people of color to have internalized racism. Um, people have different schools right. of thought on whether like black people or people of color can be racist, but we all have this internalized racism. So um, it is not because you're a bad person and it's not because, you know, it, it's not, a, a, um, it's no, it's no comment on your character. It's more of a comment on where you were raised. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think that's a really important distinction to make. And I hope that makes it easier for people to start on their journey of being yeah. anti-racist. So I obviously still want to, um, with the little bit of time we have left, want to ask you a few personal questions. Mm -hmm. um, the first of which being, what is the biggest thing you learned in the last year? Mm, that's a good question. Hmm. I feel like I've learned so much <laughs> this this year alone, which I don't think I'm alone in. Um, I think that um, – Probably the biggest thing that I've learned is honestly, I know we've talked about this a lot, but this concept of sort of, I think I've learned so much more about the abolition movement and specifically like defunding the police. Um, I think like my, and I'm sure a lot of other people's activism and sort of like anti-racist journey has really leveled up this year. Um, and mm -hmm. while I understood again, sort of symptoms of issues, you know, oh, police brutality, we should make sure people wear we should make sure cops wear um, uh, video cameras while they're yeah. on duty. You know, like these little things, I was always like, oh, what can we do? Oh, maybe, you know, we need to have better training. And I think it's just this year has taught me, I mean, Defend the Police is an example, but it's taught me to pull the lens back even further than I'm used to doing to examine it at like the structural, to get at it at the root, really, like I've said before, like grasp the problem at the root. That can be applied to so many things, even outside of the context of like anti-racism and DEI, like even in personal life, like grasping things at the root instead of just addressing the symptom, I feel like is something that has been a, a recurring lesson to me this year. Um, and I think it just feels like it almost takes a burden off of us to be like, oh, these are really, really, really big issues. Right. And we are dealing with decades and sometimes centuries of like these deeply ingrained practices that 
we need to change. Um, but by sort of pulling the lens back far enough, I think we can actually make meaningful change again, whether that's in our personal lives or like in our anti-racist journeys, um, that feels like a big takeaway from 2020 for me. Wow. That's, that's big right there. And I think I'm, I'm right there with you on it is how massive these things are. And I studied poli-sci obviously, so mm-hmm. I knew how big things were structurally, but I never thought other people who like didn't have a degree in the subject would ever really understand that. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, um, <absolutely>. right. <laughs> so I'm glad that it's, you know, it's, it's We've really all got a dose of poli-sci this year. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> We've all taken a course for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Okay. All right. Then um, in the same vein, what is one like resource that's helped you exponentially? I know you mentioned the NAP ministry, but is there mm-hmm. anything else? Yeah, that would be a big one. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see what else. Let me think for a second. Um, I think, um, honestly, maybe this doesn't quite work, but the app Libby, I've mentioned this before too. It's like the free, um, it's like a free library app. So like if you have a library card somewhere, you can get digital books. You can get like every book you would get in a library, but the ebook version, um, just using your library card. So like if you have a Kindle, it's the perfect way to unlock just like any book you want. Um, I'm a big fan of libraries. I have a whole spiel on how like libraries are one of the last public spaces in in America that you can just be in for free and not be expected to buy something and just like be encouraged to exist and like helps build so community and all of that. Um, yes. So libraries. Libraries. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love libraries already, but I think like the reason that's felt like such a helpful resource to me this year is because like there's been so much I want to learn more about. Um, I've downloaded a lot of the sort of like buzzy books of 2020 on um, whatever, anti-racism, you know, you can get white fragility on there, you can get how to be an anti-racist, you can get, so you want to talk about race, you know, like any book you want. And so I I think like in a year where more information to me has been comforting, like that is how I've gotten through this year is by finding as much information on whatever the topic is, uh, the current topic um, Mm. as possible. Um, I've really, I've really sort of used Libby I guess libraries in general is the larger takeaway but Libby for sure has been really helpful to me um, in my own learning journey that's so helpful I'm definitely going to take advantage of that for a bunch yeah, of highly things. recommend I'm the same way I'm very comforted by a lot of information so yes yeah which can be I mean which can lead to like that whole overconsumption we were talking yeah. about but <laughs> however you gotta get through the year I think is how you do it that's so true okay so then um my last what I like to end the podcast podcast with is a little series of rapid fire questions okay are you you down for that I'm down yeah let's do it exciting okay so the first one is appetizers or dessert oh appetizers I'm with you I'm with you okay Instagram or TikTok Mm, Instagram I mean (laughs) that's 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 where the following is I'm, I don't, I'm with you. Talk is for Gen Z. I don't. I think I'm a millennial. I, I don't quite understand. Yeah, I'm. I'm right on the cusp. And yeah. honestly, TikTok makes me happier. But like, they're meaner. <laughs> they're really mean. Like, oh they, my god, they are. I, they're so honest. It's they're so honest. I was like, I'm not ready for this. I got to close the app. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Favorite TV show of all time. Oh, this is boring, but I've got to say The Office. I'm You're one like of those people. The sixth guest. Who I know that. it's so boring. It's so <laughs> no, boring. it's not. I've never seen it actually. <laughs> oh my gosh, are you serious? I'm, I'm serious. I'm not going to tell not. you. Everybody tells you to watch it, but it, you know, yeah. it was on TV today, and I almost turned it on, and then I went to CNN so I could overconsume. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, do you have a favorite podcast? 
Oh, um, okay. Um, I gotta say, I'm I'm kind of a true crime junkie. Interesting. Which, uh, honestly, I've sort of uh, learning from this year. Don't listen to true crime when like you're already feeling a little down. I didn't really realize <laughs> how much that affects you. But I mean, like the OG is serial. So like I just listened to serial. I just re listened to serial actually earlier this week. Um, wow. Yeah, I have way too many. Like I have nightmares like I cannot yeah. do that I think it's because when I was little and getting my hair done my aunt would always make me watch Law and Order <laughs> and I was like five years old watching these people get murdered and so now I can't do any horror I can't do any crime no it really <laughs> sticks with you I think yeah. that's something I've learned like when I'm getting older I'm like oh I don't just like listen and it goes away like those things you know they kind of stick with you it makes you me feel a little, a little scared so little I've been scary. steering clear time this year but i would say like if i was going to listen to something serial i feel like is the sort of original yeah one. yeah okay so then most important self-care practice oh um i would say especially during quarantine my daily walks which i see you do too so mm. i'm sure i'm sure you feel this but morning and evening walks to like cap off the day and get out of the house just feels so important i started the year by doing it while listening to podcasts and listening to music and realize what I actually needed was just like time to clear silent. my head. So I've been doing it just silent walks. Um, yes. I tried doing that recently and it's, yeah. it's a big, it's a big difference and it's really important. It is. It's, it's, it's for a totally different purpose. I think like it's more fun to listen to a podcast while I walk or listen to music, but mm -hmm. sometimes I just need the quiet to process a little. Right. Right. Okay. So final question is finish this sentence with something you want younger people to know. You're too smart for. You're too smart for silence. Period. Go with that. Period. That's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on and for your wisdom and for your extremely calming voice. I'm very <laughs> happy to have been able to talk to you. This was so fun. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to hear. I'm so excited to, for the launch of it. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to tune in. I can't wait. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Too Smart for This podcast. Be sure to leave a review if you liked it. It takes two seconds. And follow the show on Instagram at Too Smart for This Pod. Check back every Tuesday and Friday for new episodes. And make sure to follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Alexis Barber for more content about lifestyle, health, and career. And don't forget, you're too smart to not love yourself.